Good morning, good morning. <clears throat> if this is your first time at the Cross Loganville, welcome. So good to have you as a guest with us today. I'm going to start a new four-week series today that I've titled <clears throat> Soul Restoration. And I believe deep down inside each and every one of us, we could use a little restoring of the soul and uh, to have a heart change, our perspective change, our direction in life change. And so I would ask you as we start this series today to open your hearts and minds to uh, the Spirit of the Lord and ask God to speak to you today. I'm going to pray, but I would ask you to pray during this time and uh, grab your, your bulletin insert. It's got the points on it. There's uh, pens in the seat backs in front of you. This is going to be more of a conversation, kind of a teaching, talking point with you today. And so I pray that you would open your hearts. Let's, let's pray as we get rolling. Father, we love you and we praise you and we thank you. Uh, that we can pause here on this beautiful Sunday morning. And uh, I pray in the name of Jesus that every man and woman in this room now would just open their hearts to you. I pray that you would speak. I pray that you would speak in a gentle way. I pray that you would speak, Father, with clarity into our lives right now in Jesus' name. I pray that we would desire to become the men and women that you've called us to be, the people that you desire us to be. And so I pray that we would eliminate all distractions right now as we video these services here, Father. I pray that we would just uh, eliminate any distractions, phones off, all of that, and that we would really just uh, focus in on listening to the Word of God and the heartbeat of heaven. So guide us now, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. If I had to title our talk today, I would title it, The Power to Change. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why can't I change? Why can't I change? I've tried to. I've attempted to. Uh, I want to. I think I want to. But why can't I change? Even when I've made these attempts to change, nothing seems to last. I remember back in my pagan days in college. I remember all those failed attempts I had in my flesh to try to change. All right, I'm not going to cuss anymore. I'm not going to drink anymore. God, if you'll just let me get home without getting a DUI, I'm not going to drink and get hammered anymore. And I would pray those futile prayers. Anybody else? In, am, I, am, I, am I speaking to anybody else that prayed those kind of prayers in the past? And I always would kind of stop and ponder, why can't I change? What's missing inside of me? It's like, how do I break out of the rut that I'm in? I'm just stuck, and I've been stuck in the same place for a period of time, and I keep doing the same thing over and over, and, and I really don't like where I'm at. I really don't like where I've been. I don't really like even where I'm going. What, what's wrong with me? So I started thinking about this. Why is change so difficult? And is there real power to change that is lasting, not just a temporary belief system, but a permanent core belief system? Is it possible to experience a core belief uh, change deep down inside of our hearts? But w why can't we change? And for a lot of us, we come in here, and the reason we can't change is we're stubborn. We're just right out hard-headed. You can't tell us anything. And, and, and my dad used to tell me that when I was growing up, son, you're hard-headed. And I think I tell my sons that at times as well. Man, you're so stinking stubborn. But I think a lot of us never change because we're just stubborn. We're just, uh, we're set in our ways. We kind of have uh, established some patterns that we live by. We're, we're, we're stubborn. Here's another reason. We feel trapped. 
We feel trapped. I was talking to a, a couple this week. And uh, as we were sitting there kind of talking through their narrative, she was sharing with me that uh, her dad, she never knew about her biological dad. Then she was telling me in college she was raped. And then she was telling me that uh, she got into this marriage that was absolutely a train wreck. And as she continued to live in stable misery and chaos, she just felt trapped. And she said, you know, I I don't know why, but I started thinking suicide. And I started thinking, "I, I just need to die. She really wanted to live, but she didn't know how to live. And she thought she was going to be trapped in what she was in forever. And she said, you know, looking back on it, it was such a dark time because she said, I just felt trapped. And there's people that come in here week after week. You just feel trapped. For some of us, the reason we don't change is that we're just comfortable with who we are. I'm not going to experience any more of God. I've kind of got a rhythm and a routine and... I've got my strategies and kind of solutions. At least I've developed enough good flesh patterns that I'm just kind of comfortable with where I'm at. For for some of us, we're afraid to try anything new. It's like, I I don't know, man. I just, I'm not going to try anything new and different. At least this is working right now. There's a payoff in it. And here's the reality. I want you to hear this. Change is hard. Change is difficult. And God-style change is way, way challenging for us. Because it means that we've got to die to who we are. It means we have to lay aside, again, what we want and what we've defined as being best if we're really going to experience God's best. Now, here's the reality. Why don't we change? Because we lack the power to change. That's the bottom line. We lack the power. Now, last week, we broke down the good news of the gospel, and we talked about what the good news offers. Now, here's the reality. The good news is Jesus Christ offers us the power to change. There's no power outside of him that's going to bring about lasting change. He brings about this power. Now, 57 times, 57 times, that was nice, uh, here in the, the New Testament, 57 times we read the word power. Acts 1.8 talks about you'll receive power. Paul, I'll quote Philippians 3.10 here in a bit. But 57 times the word power is mentioned. And when that word is mentioned, it is the Greek word dunamis. D-U-N-A-M-I-S, dunamis, and it's where we get the English word dynamite from. And so when we talk about the power of God, we're talking about this mighty power, this dynamite power that God wants to give each and every one of us. Philippians 3.10, if you memorize scripture, I would highly encourage you to memorize Philippians 3.10. Out of the New American Standard, it says that I might know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection. I want to be uh, acquainted with the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be conformed even into the likeness of his death. So Paul writes and he goes, you know, I I just want to know Jesus. In the New Living Translation, it says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to know him. And again, there's two words in the Greek for know, the word oida, cognitive, the word gnosko, which is deep, heartfelt, surrender, experience. Paul says, I want to know Christ in this mighty power. I want to know this dunamis of God daily. I would highly encourage you to memorize that verse. Now, as I started thinking through this, this mighty power of God, God's mighty power can cancel your past. It can help you conquer your current problems, and it can change your perspective of doing life. It can change you. There was a guy that came with a friend in the first service, and he 
before we started the service, he said, this dude hadn't been to church, man, since Elvis died. It's been forever. I said, I hear you. And he said, it's been a long time. He said, but let me tell you, he's been stranded in his addiction and he's beat up. And I said, deep down inside, man, as I looked at this guy, I thought, man, he, he's struggling to believe that there's power to cancel his past. Now, when I talk about counseling our past, I'm talking about our failures, our mistakes, our regrets, our sin, things that we've done. Every person under my voice has royally jacked it up. You've sucked at certain things in life. Every one of us has. You don't have to be on the planet long to mess it up. So you're sitting here and you've got, yeah, yeah, I've jacked some things up. Now, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, you'll see the text, but it says this, you were dead. Because of your sins. You, you were dead. You were stuck with where you were because of sin. But God made you alive in Christ and has forgiven all of our sins in Christ. He canceled out the record of the charges against us by having nailed it to the cross. We visited this last week, but I believe one of the greatest things that we're going to experience soul restoration is we have to believe that our past has been canceled out. Now, always when I'm reading through a text, I like to personalize it. I would encourage you to do the same thing. But reading through this Colossians 2, 13 and 14, I wrote this. I was spiritually dead. I was alienated, separated from God. My sin poisoned my life, my sin. I didn't blame, deflect. I wasn't looking anywhere else. It was me. But God made me alive. God forgave all my sin in Christ Jesus. Jesus' sacrifices canceled the darkest deeds I've done in my past. I would highly encourage you to grab a pen and grab a, a, a journal or whatever. When you're going through Scripture, personalize the text that you're reading. Make it personal to you. But when we talk about counseling our past, I'm not talking about denying it. I'm talking about confronting it. I'm talking about dealing with it, looking at it for what it really was and maybe still is in your life. But the word cancel means to eliminate. It means to neutralize. It means to absolutely offset it. So when I think about God's forgiveness and the power of the gospel to forgive my past, and I was a prisoner and a slave of my past for a while because I felt like my deeds of what I had done was so dark that God was still ticked at me and I'd hurt other people with a collateral damage. But when I got to the place of realizing that Jesus looked and said, all of that has been dealt with once and for all. All of it. Yeah, 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 all of it. Tim, I do not hold your past against you any longer. My son became a criminal and was murdered on a cross for that. I'm like, for all of my junk, yes. And so when I started to realize that Jesus... He, he knows the wrongs that I've done. But Jesus didn't come to rub my face in that sin. He came to wash me clean. He didn't come to condemn me and keep me in chains. He came to change me and free me and liberate me to become the person he desires for me to be. So there's people in this room right now that are still living in guilt and shame because of your past. Again, when Jesus cries out in John 19, 30, it is finished. He didn't say, I've done my part, now you go do yours. He said, it is finished. The Greek, tetelestai. It has totally been canceled, dealt with once and for all. You're free. You're free. 
Now, I'm telling you, the power of the gospel, when I start to really understand how I have been forgiven and my past has been canceled out, it does not create in me a desire to sin. It doesn't give me a license to live a foolish life. It creates in me a desire to honor this God that loved me so much that he would cancel out my debt. Isaiah 44:22 says, I have wiped out your transgression like a thick cloud. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Come back to me. Seek my face. Seek my heart. Come, come to me. I used the equation last week that God's love is greater than. I would tell you this. God's forgiveness is greater than whatever sin you can fill in the blank, whatever failure, whatever mistake, whatever regret. Some of us need to believe that we are forgiven. Some of us sitting here today We need to go back and reacquaint ourselves with the truth that when God looks at us, he goes, you're forgiven. I'm not holding your past against you. Nothing you've done can separate. You can't separate you from me. I am for you. So here would be my question. What sin or what secret of your past continues to haunt you, defeat you, tie you up, and keep you living in a place of habitual defeat and stable misery. I would encourage you to release it to Jesus right now. Right now. So let's pray. Right now. Whatever the sin, whatever the failure, whatever it is that you have empowered that continues to haunt you, tell God right now, God, I receive your forgiveness. Your love, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness is greater than, now now itemize it. Tell them what it is. I believe, not only do I receive it, but I believe that I am forgiven. I believe I am clean. I believe you're for me. I receive that and believe that in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you would be wise to grab you a little note card and bow before one of these crosses and say, you know what, I'm nailing it to the cross. I am releasing it as a spiritual transaction to say, I'm letting it go. One of the things that keeps so many people living in defeat is their past. They empower it and Satan continues to haunt you with it because he's telling you, hey, hey, that stuff is so brutal. There's no way God can love you, forgive you, and accept you. You've got to let it go and believe that God's forgiveness is greater than. Here's the second thought. God's power can conquer your problems. We all have problems. We live in a fallen world. Jesus said in this world, you're going to have trouble. Be of good cheer. I've overcome this world. But God wants us to learn to trust him with our problems. You'll hear me make this statement. Instead of telling God how big our problems are, we need to start telling our problems how big our God is. Once we start to do that, our perspective has shifted and we're going, God is bigger than, fill in the blank. God's power can help you overcome your current problems, whatever the circumstances you find yourself in. Romans 8 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. If you cut me open, I would bleed a lot of Romans 8. 
Verse 1, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. There's no separation for those in Christ. We can call him Abba, Father. If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, all these great nuggets, but in verse 35, listen to this. Who can separate us from Christ's love? What can? Who can? What can separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have calamity? When we're persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or even threatened by death? No, despite all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. And one of the first verses I memorized as a believer was Romans 8.31 and Romans 8.37. What shall we say? If God's for us, who can be against us? Knowing all these things, you're more than a conqueror. What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? It means that when you face the trials of life, you know that God is with you and God is greater than. When you go through the darkest valley of pain, rejection, betrayal, Something inside of you says, God is greater than this. I will not empower all of those other things. When you're going through it, it it means that I really believe that even as dark as this moment is, hope is available, and all I've got to do is reach out and grab a hold to his garment. God is for you. And so I was studying this, and I'm like, okay, so what is the difference between being a conqueror and being a more than a conqueror? So these guys are going to play flag football today. And my buddy Jeff's in his 50s and Chet's in his 50s, and they're going to get out there and play, and I'm praying that neither one of them gets hurt. But here's the deal. Lord, please keep those Achilles and hamstrings intact. But if they go out to play today, and the one team beats the other one, 35-28, you would say they conquered them. But if they go out to play today, and one of the teams beats the other team, 100-7, to you would say they more than conquered What God is showing us in Scripture is because of the power of Jesus, we are more than anything we face. We're not just going to conquer it. We overwhelmingly will win. We may battle certain wars here and there, but I can tell you Jesus ultimately has given us victory. We're going to battle things. So I want you to know, as you sit here today, the power, the mighty power that Paul mentions in Philippians 3.10, is able to cancel out all your past if you'll receive it. He's able to help you conquer the problems that you're going through right now if you'll receive it. Now, I want to land here for a bit. But he's also able to help us change our perspective. Change our perspective. The power of the gospel can change our worldview. And God has literally changed my personality over these last 30 years since I came to faith in Jesus. You talk about egotistical and arrogant and rude and selfish and condemning others. Man, I was there. And as I look back over my journey, the Holy Spirit has melted me, convicted me. I've repented. He's like, you got to let that go. And so for some of you sitting here, When you look at your past and you look at that moment when you really placed your faith and trust in Jesus, and now you look at three years, five years, 10, 20 years down the road of really being a disciple, you go, God has changed my perspective. He's almost changed my personality. I had a wife recently tell me that her husband was too temperamental. I said, what do you mean by that? She said, he's 90% temper and 10% mental. So (laughs) I'm like, well, he probably needs to be changed. I want to introduce you to a guy by the name of Elijah today. 
Elijah is a very interesting uh, person in Scripture. James chapter 5 verse 17 says, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. Elijah, his name means my God is Yahweh. The name Yahweh means uh, God is the great I am. Elijah's name, nomen est omen in the Latin, your name is your destiny. His name literally means uh, my God is the great I am. It's a pretty cool name. But Elijah was a man with a nature just like you and I. Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. He had a pretty tight prayer life, but he was also a man just like you and I. We'll get to him. 1 Kings chapter 18 is a very powerful chapter. 1 Kings 18, uh, Elijah, this prophet of God, he, he's looking at the nation of Israel. Ahab is the king, and uh, Elijah's looking around, and all these people are worshiping Baal, B-A-A-L. And Baal was this... Uh, foreign deity, if you will, uh, this uh, deity of fertilization. He, people believed that they, if they prayed to Baal, he would increase their crop, meaning plants and all that. If they prayed to Baal, he would increase their offspring. And you've got all these people in Israel, God's chosen people, Israel, the ones who are supposed to be struggling and wrestling with God. So many had started to drift toward worshiping Baal, this foreign deity, this pagan deity. And so Elijah's looking around and he goes, I tell you what, there's 450 prophets of Baal. He goes, let's get together and we're going to decide and determine who really is God, who's really in control. So they go to Mount Carmel. We were in Mount Carmel. We were on top of this mountain back in January, Barb and I. And while I stood there, I was like, this is where Elijah called out fire from heaven. No way. The Jezreel Valley is right underneath it where the Battle of Armageddon, the Mount of Transfiguration. And I'm like, what a cool place to be. This is where Elijah called out fire from heaven. I started thinking about 1 Kings 18. But while he's there, he looks at these prophets of Baal and he says, prepare the altar. Get your ox, cut it, sacrifice it, put the wood here on the altar, and start calling on your God. And whichever God comes down and consumes the altar with fire, he's the real God. Well, these 450 prophets of Baal start calling on their God early that afternoon. They keep calling, calling, and calling, and nothing happens. And then Elijah basically says, uh, let's prepare this altar right. Now, I want you guys to go out and get buckets of water, and I want you to pour water all over this oxen, all over this wood. We're, we're, we're going to show you who God is. And he starts to cry out to God. God comes down and consumes this with fire. And the Bible says it even licked up all the water that was around it. And the, many of them bowed down and said, God is God. Yahweh is God. Elohim is God. But some of them still didn't want to hear it. God's God. Elijah just says, like, when he's like, oh my word, what just happened? God moments, the power, the perspective, the presence of God was so strong. And then he says he took some of those prophets of Baal out and he murdered them. But it was a great day. And then you pick up 1 Kings 19. What's up? What happened? I missed something. But then you pick up and you read 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. It is the next day. It is the next day. 
God has just shown himself to be God. God has revealed himself in such a powerful way. And then it says this in chapter 19, when Ahab, who was a wicked king, seventh king of Israel, Saul was the first, David was the second, Solomon all the way up, Jeroboam, who was wicked, Ahab, brutal, wicked king, did things that didn't honor God. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. Who is Jezebel? She's this freak of a woman. I think we could use that word here. There's a lot of other words I think we could go to with her. But she was this freak who despised God, despised God's people, and wanted nothing to do with the things of God. Ahab, because he was walking in darkness and not honoring God, Ahab ends up violating what God tells us, don't be unequally yoked. He yokes up with somebody he shouldn't yoke up with. So Ahab goes home and tells Jezebel everything Elijah had done, calling down fire, and then he ends up killing these prophets of Baal. Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me by this time tomorrow if I haven't killed you. Now, Elijah has just seen God be God. Elijah has experienced the power of God in a crazy way. Jezebel makes this statement to him, and he freaks out. He freaks out. He takes off running, and all of a sudden, he wants to die. It's like, man, I've had enough. I can't handle it. Just because of some stupid voice of an evil woman, he empowers it and says, I don't even want to live. So he's got all these mind monsters. He's got all of this like distorted pers- perspective going on. And here's where, here's where I want to land. God's power can change our perspective. Here's some of the things that distorted Elijah. But here I'll get to a place where we can talk about solutions so that we can win. Get this one right here. When you're going through a tough time, refuse to focus on your feelings. Focus on the facts. It is so easy to become feeling-oriented. It is so easy to start focusing on just the emotion of the moment. But when you look at 1 Kings 19, verses 3 and 4, it says, Elijah was afraid. Elijah ran for his life. He went alone into the wilderness. He sat down under a tree. He prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. Feelings are not facts, and feelings are very unreliable. There's so many people we meet that are feeling driven. And here's what I want you to hear. There's not a verse in the scripture that says get in tune with your feelings. But it tells us to get in tune with the facts. John 8 says you shall know the. He didn't say you'll, you'll get in tune with your emotions and be set free. He said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It is the facts and it is the truth will absolutely change who you are. Elijah was emotional. Elijah was tired. Elijah was exhausted. My friend years ago with AA came out with the acrostic HALT, H-A-L-T. Like, when are you more apt to binge? When are you more apt to cave into a drink? When are you more apt to go back to a drug or whatever? And they're like, when you're hungry, when you're angry, when you're lonely, and when you're tired. And when we reach those places, if we're not careful, we can absolutely get emotional in the moment and do things we don't want to do. So what we learn is, from studying the life of Elijah, always focus on facts, not your feelings. Here's the second one. Refuse to compare yourself with other people. Verse 4, Elijah cries out, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. 
And, and a lot of us get there where we say, you, you, you know what? I'm comparing with other people, man. I'm no better than anybody else, man. I just might as well die. My ancestors, they didn't walk with God. Some of them forfeited the anointing of God. I, I just should die. He started comparing himself. And when we start comparing ourselves with other people, you're going to lose. Because one of the things we oftentimes do is we'll always compare our weakness with somebody else's strength. We never compare our strength with their weaknesses. We always compare, look at how much they've got it. Look at how good they've got it. We'll compare our weaknesses and before you know it, we start throwing a pity party. Comparison is the death of contentment. You can't compare with other people and live a freed up victorious life. And so I would highly encourage you, stay away from that. Man, if I could just be like so-and-so, blank, whoever they are, I would be happy. No, you wouldn't. You would be an imitator. You would be a poser if you could be like so-and-so. You were born an original. And God wants his power alive in you so that you don't try to die a copy of any other human being. There's no perfect human beings outside of Christ. But Elijah got to the place where he's like, hey, hey I'm no better than my ancestors. I'm no better than the drunks and druggies of the past. And some of us say, well, that's just where I grew up. That's just who I am. That's the way I was raised. And we go right back to it as a dog returns to his vomit, Proverbs says. Here's a third thing. You want to talk about a distorted perspective? Stop blaming yourself. Stop beating yourself up all the time. Verses 9 and 10 says, Elijah came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said, Elijah, what are you doing here? He replied, listen to this right here. I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty. Man, I've been locked in. My prayer time's great. I'm in the Word. I've done what God's asked me to do. Man, I've just served God. But the people, and this is where he goes, but the people, these people that I'm supposed to be speaking to, these people that you've put me in charge of, but look at these people, God. They've broken covenant with you. They've torn down your altars. They don't even want to worship you anymore. They've killed all your other prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. You ever got there? Jeremiah was a weeping prophet. I mean, he proclaimed God's message for years. He didn't even see anybody come to faith. And I think a lot of times we get there going, I'm the only one serving God at this job. I'm the only one serving God in my school. I'm the only one serious about it. And all of a sudden you're going, well, I, I don't seem to be making any difference. I'm the only one in my family really fired up. I've prayed over my kids. I've read scripture to my, my kids. I've prayed over our family. Marriage busted up. Kids raised in hell. Living in the far country. Drinking like guppies. What am I supposed to do? You ever been there? You ever been there? And we all can get there. And he was blaming himself. But I shared this with a friend this week whose daughter's going through a tough time. And my buddy had gotten depressed with some stuff. Listen to me. When you assume responsibility for other people's decisions, you will carry a burden that will destroy you. When you carry the responsibility for somebody else's choices and decisions, and you start carrying that with you as if it belongs to you, it will destroy you. You can influence other people, but you cannot control them. And that's a painful reality. 
Who are you responsible for? Lord, I'm responsible to walk with you. And you tell me to bring my kids up and you, you give me some principles to live by and truths. I want to do that. But whether they're walking totally holy or walking radical and rebellious against God in a different direction, you're telling me what you believe. You're not telling me what I believe. You're telling me where you're at. You're not telling me where I'm at. And there's been people that were brought up in the faith that threw the towel in and just walked a different direction. And some of you come in here today and you're blaming yourself. You're beating yourself up. And then here's the truth. You've done some jacked up stuff. And, 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 and some of you have done some things and there's consequences to it. But God says, stop it. Let me heal your heart. Let me restore you. Now, here, here's the solution. He looks at Elijah and he basically says, you need to take care of yourself physically. Verses 5 through 7, Elijah lay down and slept under the broom tree. As he was sleeping, an angel touched him and said, get up and go eat. Then the angel of the Lord came and touched him again and said, get up and go eat. The journey ahead of you is going to be too much. Let's go. What did he tell him to do? He said, man, you need to get some food. You, you need to, to get some, some liquid in your system. And you need to relax. And some of us burn out. And some of us, man, hit walls at times because we're, we're tired. We're fatigued. We're exhausted. We've been doing all this stuff in Jesus' name. Or we've been doing it in the flesh or whatever. And God goes, you, you're going to have to take care of yourself physically. You're going to have to refresh and refuel and recharge. You need to relax a little bit. Your body is, is, is breaking down. And you, you know as well as I do, if you try to push through that and your body's fatigued, you just open yourself up, man, to, for a lot of different attacks. And so what did he say? Elijah, take care of yourself physically. Second thing, get honest with God. Get honest with him. God knew where Elijah was. He knew what Elijah was going through. And God knows when you're uptight. God knows when you're spent. Why don't you tell him? He can handle your concerns. He knows them already. When we carry him around thinking, man, I'll fix myself. It's not going to work. When you read 1 Kings 19, and I encourage you to do so, he was an emotional mess. He was afraid. He had resentment. He felt guilty. He said, I'm fed up with it all. I'm ready to die. You ever, you ever been fed up and just said, I want to die? I mean, I was at a ball game a few weeks ago, and I was watching it, and the umpires were so bogus, I started quoting scripture. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'm fed up with it. I've seen enough. <laughs> you ever been there? But Elijah's looking at his ministry and his mission, and he's looking at these people. He was angry. I've worked so hard, and they won't listen to you. He felt lonely. He was worried. Here's what I want you to do. Take those words, even when you've been there yourself. Take the words fear, resentment, guilt, worry, loneliness, anger. Take all those words, pour that into a blender and mix it up and drink it and tell me if it's not a lethal concoction. Tell me you are not a bitter person. Tell me your perspective is all jacked up. And, and all Elijah had to do was say, yeah, yeah, I, I, I got to get with God, which is the third thing. You've got to encounter God in a fresh way. When your perspective gets jacked up, you've got to get away. All right, I've got to rest. I've got to take care of my body. I've I got to tell God what's going on, but I've got to get away. I've got to unplug from all the noise. Listen to what he says. Verses 11 through 13. God told Elijah, go out and stand before me on the mountain. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. The Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. 
After the earthquake, there was a fire, but God was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak. He went out, stood at the entrance of the cave, and a voice said to him, what are you doing here? What, 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 are, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? I think a lot of us, based on our uh, marinade, a lot of people that grew up in the South, even in some charismatic style churches, you're waiting for God only to reveal himself in the sensational moment. You think he's going to come in the earthquake. You think he's going to come with some mighty blazing wind. You think it's just going to be fire after fire after fire. And God does reveal, reveal himself that way at times, but it's not the pattern. Most often, it is a gentle voice. It is a small, gentle, quiet voice that you're able to hear from God. I'm telling you, I wouldn't trade anything for those 4.30, 5 o'clock mornings of just sitting there and going, all right, Lord, I just want to hang with you and I want to hear from you. It's usually eliminating noise. It's usually in those quiet moments that God goes, now, let me show you something. It's even going down the road, no radio, no phone calls or anything, and just saying, all right, Lord, what are you speaking to me right now? What are you wanting me to see in regards to whatever the area I'm dealing with in? God looked at Elijah and said, what, what are you doing here? What are you, what are you doing here? And I would pose that question to you. Broad stroke. What are you doing here on the planet? But then I would personalize it. You got up. You drove over here this morning. You're sitting here. What, what are you doing here? What, what are you doing here? Are you checking a box saying, you know, 80, 85 minutes? Had a little church time? Should I have a good week now? What, what are you doing here? Are you here to worship God? Are you here to encounter God? Are you really here to experience God? Are you here to work on you? Are you here to experience his power? What, what, what are you doing here? I look at people all the time and I'm like, wonder what they're doing here. Well, what's their motive? What's their why? What are they trying to accomplish? What are you doing here? Are you really here to experience God? Are you really here to, to get set free? Are, are you here because you want healing in your life? Are you here because you're fed up with all your systems and strategies and they're not working? Why, why are you here? Are, are you here because you're trying to believe that your past really has been dealt with and, and you're getting closer and you still haven't crossed? Why are you here? And I think that's a fundamental question we have to ask ourselves when we arise in the morning. Why am I here? The key to vision is moving from here to there. How do I get into this incredible, like, Holy Ghost encounter with God where I start to live with Christ every day? For years, baseball was my God. I empowered it. It had authority on my life. No longer. I thought I was here because of a game. That was so foolish. I'm here to glorify God. I'm here to walk with Jesus every day. I'm here that I might know him and the mighty power that raised him from the dead. So there's only one thing, one thing that will keep you from changing. There's only one thing that will keep you 
from experiencing the mighty power of God. It's not the devil. It's not your circumstances. It's not your spouse. It's not where you work. There's only one thing that will keep you from experiencing the mighty power of the gospel. And it's you. It's you. Because the Bible tells us that we can cast all our cares on him and we can come to him when we're tired, weary, and heavy laden. We're the ones. But the Bible tells us that we've got to be willing to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and focus on him. When I start to walk with Jesus as an authentic disciple and surrender, that's where I start to become alive. And that's where I start to experience life. Jesus wants to rescue you today and give you his power. He wants to rescue, from the, rescue you from the pit that you're in. He wants to change your perspective. He wants to give you the power to help conquer the problems you're facing right now. He wants to give you the power to believe that he's canceled out your past. But you're going to have to believe it. You're going to have to believe it, and you're going to have to receive it.